I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. I am here in the media studio at Chatham House alone, for I have been left abandoned by my colleague and co-host Agnes Frimston, who is gallivanting, to use her words, around Finland on a research project. Lucky her. But the joke's on her, I'll be on holiday soon, so uh, I don't feel too bad about it. And we have got an excellent interview this week to share with you by a journalist and author, Hussein Kesvani, whose new work, Follow Me Aki, looks at the digital world of British Muslims. We hope that you really enjoy the interview. Okay, so now I'm delighted to be joined on an exceedingly soggy London day by Hussein Kesvani. Hussein is a journalist, editor and producer who has written for many outlets, including BuzzFeed, Vice, The New Statesman and The Spectator. And his latest book, Follow Me, Aki, explores the online world of British Muslims. Hussein, thanks for braving the rainstorm to join us Thank today. you for inviting me. I'm really excited. So maybe we could begin by just explaining what drove you to write this book. Sure. There were like two things. The first was, as you said, I was a reporter and I was working as a religion reporter back in 2015. My my, my The main thing I was working on was issues to do with like British Muslims because at the time there were a lot of young British Muslims who were going, going over to Syria and there was there were these questions over like why they were going and what was the motivation. And some people were kind of saying, that, oh, this is like an institutional thing. Like, you know, this is radicalization that's happening in mosques or in kind of big communities where there's lots of Muslims. And on the other side, there were people who were like, no, this is like to do with the dangers of the Internet. And it's like to do with, you know, people being radicalized online. And it's nothing to do with the mosques at all. It's nothing to do with like Islam at all. And for me, these were like very reductive ways of looking at both kind of the reasons why they were going, but also just kind of the notion of religious identity itself, that like it was compartmentalized. And, you know, I, I I was someone who like grew up on the internet. So I was around during like the first iterations of social media, like Pixo, Bebo, all those stuff mm. later on MySpace. So, and during, and that all happened during like the formative years of my life, my teenage years. And I was also growing up in like a post 7-7 world when the social like social media was really taking off so for me it was really natural to kind of explore and exert religious identity through the means of the internet because it was really the only way that I could like growing up I could communicate and um express myself mm. in especially because in an environment where there are very few kind of Muslims so I grew up in Kent where I went to a grammar school which was at the time very very largely white Christian or like white secular there were not a lot of religious people and there were definitely not a lot of Muslims. So growing up in that environment, like the internet kind of really provided this environment that I couldn't get in the material world. So I was thinking about this and I was kind of like, I sort of wonder whether there's a similar dynamic going on here where this is really a question about what Muslim identity means and how the internet kind of provides different 
avenues and different kind of areas and communities in which people can explore things. And some of those communities can lead people to do quite dangerous stuff. But in other cases, there are communities that allow safer environments for people to kind of practice faith or to be part of themselves or to kind of explore aspects of their faith in relation to themselves without kind of the pressures of their lived material experiences, whether that's like families or communities or even kind of interactions with the state. So when I left the reporting job, I had all these stories in, I had all these like stories in my notebook of people that I'd spoken to, young Muslims I'd spoken to, who were just using the internet to kind of do quite ordinary things, but things that you wouldn't really expect or things that you wouldn't really consider to be instrumental to the intersection between religion and internet culture. Mm. So when I was thinking about doing this, I was going back to those stories and thinking to myself, oh, actually, like the common thread with all these stories is that, you know, technology is playing like a really fundamental role and how are the ways of doing that um or how the way that that, how are the ways that's happening now at the same time 2016 is also as you know like this very remarkable year where you have the trump election and you have brexit and we're all having these conversations around how much have social media platforms influenced those those elections yeah you know, so we're talking a lot about bots and we're talking a lot about identity politics and how the internet kind of sets us low bar for political participation and what does that mean for the future of democracy. These are all really big and interesting and important questions. And when I was reading them, I was thinking to myself, well, the same can be applied with religious spaces as well, right? Um, the internet has really changed the way that you can be a religious person. It's really changed kind of the bar of understanding or the bar of knowledge that you need to kind of participate in discussions. It has really challenged geographic institutions it's really challenged religious like physical religious institutions and it's also kind of captured a generation of young people who will never see themselves in the same way as their parents have done for both their lived experiences most of them having grown up in the western world but also most of them kind of growing up in this age where technology is sort of integrated in our everyday lives and if we can talk about politics and technology in a way that's nuanced and one where we can recognize that your lived political experience can also be mapped onto your digital political experience and vice versa. Why can't we do the same with religion? Mm. Really interesting. Now, this book is is one that's kind of driven by the stories of individuals, uh, kind of follow those threads throughout. Maybe just for the benefit of the listeners, could you recount one of the stories, just to give it a bit of colour, something that's particularly stuck with you? Or... Yeah. Um, one. This might be surprising, but one of the most interesting stories that I covered was actually in the first chapter of the book, which is about religious authorities and physical prayer spaces. And I profiled two sets of people. I profiled two guys who set up their own kind of Friday prayers in their flat. And that was because the Friday prayers that they used to attend in. So, you know, they both worked in the city of London and they both went to like a mosque that was nearby for Friday prayers. And what they found was that their Friday prayers weren't kind of giving them what they wanted so they would describe it as like you know they would come in sit in a cramped room um they would listen to an imam like the preacher Mm. kind of talk about something that wasn't really relevant to what they felt wasn't relevant to their lives um they were interested in like politics and you know the political experience of muslims they wanted to kind of know what was happening in like palestine and burma and like all these places where kind of muslims are having a really hard time and instead what they were saying was that we're listening to kind of lectures about you know how to you know wash yourself in like a properly islamic way and it just wasn't kind of relevant to the lived muslim experience that we had so instead we set up our own prayer space in our flat where it's just like two of us and every week we kind of decide what topics we want to listen to 
and we'll sit down and watch like a YouTube video, whether that's an Islamic YouTube video or not, and we'll learn something from it. We'll take those 20 minutes out to learn something from it. We'll pray and then we'll go back to work. And it's like such a simple story. And I was speaking to a Christian about this yesterday at an event that I was at. And she was saying that, like, this is a really normal thing in Christianity, right? Like, I think she called it, like, home worship. Like, mm. this tradition of home worship where um, people who may not have access to churches or kind of aren't satisfied with, like, how the church is being run will set up their own prayers, or, like, prayer spaces in their houses because of this idea that, like, the church is anything, right? A church doesn't have to be, like, a physical pl- place. You know, it, it just has to be a congregation. But with Friday prayers, it's different because with Friday prayers... For a lot of Muslims, the importance isn't necessarily about the lecture. It's about the physical act of prayer. Islam is a very physical religion. Mm. So the emphasis is on like community prayer and the idea that like your Friday prayer means something if you're praying with an entire community of people rather than just on your own. Like individualized prayer isn't really something that has like a long tradition or like it doesn't really kind of have a preference in Islam. So what these guys were doing as someone who grew up as a Muslim, as a practicing Muslim, like that was a really kind of radical thing for them to do. But something that like you wouldn't really expect to be radical if like you kind of just said it on the street. And in the same vein, I also spoke to some women who had set up their, a similar space in their house. And for them, it was not because they were dissatisfied with the lecture or like any like any kind of contents, but they were dissatisfied with the lack of space that they actually had to pray in the mosque. So for them... You know, you know, they weren't allowed to access male spaces because, again, with mosques, like, you know, it's gender segregated for religious reasons or most of them are gender segregated for religious reasons. And what they were saying was that the male space is much more bigger. It's much more accommodating. It has more space. It has like more resources. The women's space didn't have that. And yet the expectations on women to kind of help the mosque run by kind of providing food and cleaning service and sort of stuff like that is still placed on them. And there was an unfair dynamic. And the woman that I interviewed, she had said that she had tried to kind of go through like the formal means of kind of getting more space. So she went through like mosque committees, like male dominated mosque committees. She, you know, tried to kind of go through like the head of, you know, the committee and none of it worked. So for her, the next step was to kind of like use a WhatsApp group to basically kind of say, okay, well, we will have like prayer spaces and we'll have like prayer discussions during the daytime at my house and we'll kind of create a, like a prayer space like a halakha is what it's called there. And I found that really interesting too because it was like, it was the same dynamic for a very different reason. And in that sense, it was like a very, it kind of shone a light on like the whole gendered experience, the whole idea about like for men, this decision to kind of take prayers in, like make prayers like a very personalized and individualized thing comes from a sense of personal dissatisfaction, spiritual dissatisfaction. But with women, they're using kind of, you know, technology you know tools and technology not to kind of express spiritual dissatisfaction per se but to criticize their kind of lived material experiences around faith which is important to them and where like the physical space doesn't accommodate that they have to kind of find ways using technology to assert their own religious identity on their own terms with this change that technology is bringing in what has it really changed the status of the mosque as a kind of community space Mm. is it do you, is that something you can discern or are, are these still relatively early days in kind of challenging these kind of community spaces? I say in the book that like I'm not my contention isn't that the Internet is like replacing the authority of the mosque. Yeah. And I don't think that that's the case. And I think that's really important because I think especially for some people who haven't read the book, their assumption was like, oh, you're kind of saying that like, you know, the Internet is going to replace like, you know, 
these kind of mosques that have been here for like generations like no absolutely not like yeah. i think again islam is a very physical religion and mm -hmm. i don't think that those physical spaces are going to go anytime soon and i think that especially when we're talking about like anti-muslim prejudice and like attacks on mosques and everything you know the kind of there's this kind of renewed um status of the mosque where it's like okay this is actually this is a community place and an attack on it is like an attack on British Muslims themselves. So like there's also kind of added meanings that have happened as a result of the times that we live in. So I don't contend that it's going to replace anything. I also don't contend that it undermines the authority of the mosque. But what I do think is that technology has sort of changed how mosques are sort of seen. So in some cases, they're not kind of considered to be like the big community hubs where like everyone goes to and you kind of seek your answers and you seek your identity from there for the most part. There were like young Muslims I spoke to who were like, you know, we pray in our local mosque where our parents go to, but the imam who speaks there isn't kind of someone that I necessarily look up to. Right. I prefer listening to so-and-so person. And even though I live in Bradford, I'll listen to this imam who like lives in London or, you know, I kind of live in London, but I'm not satisfied with like the you know certain kind of beliefs that my mosque has so i would affiliate more with this mosque in birmingham and i interact with them via their live streams on youtube or i listen to you know the preacher who has his own like facebook live feed and stuff like that and that's a time when i really engage with like intellectual islam whereas for me you know whereas for them like the mosque is more about kind of just conducting the physical acts of prayer so they go in order to do the physical acts of prayer um so in one sense it's kind of like you know, this sort of community setting, local communities, community gatekeepers, like that model that maybe was around during the 80s and 90s isn't there so much anymore. I also think that technology has sort of enhanced the function of the mosque too. So like there was a time when I think there were a lot of mosques who were very wary about the internet and kind of trying to kind of say that we don't really want anything to do with technology. Mm. And now as kind of, you know, again, because now as technology is sort of integrated into our everyday lives and you know, it's almost impossible to think of a life where you're not kind of using a phone or a computer or a tablet or a laptop. Uh, so, you know, so for a lot of us, we're like, okay, we can't get away from this. We can't stop people from accessing the internet because it's such an integral part of our lives. So we need to kind of embrace it. So in some cases, that would involve mosques like live streaming their lectures. Sometimes that would involve imams kind of setting up their own YouTube channels or Twitter accounts or Facebook feeds. Sometimes that also involves having, you know, a social, you know, for some mosques, they have their own social media teams who, you know, the East London Mosque, I think, has one where, you know, they'll also, they won't just kind of advertise events, but they'll also kind of, you know, challenge people directly online. And for them, like, that's a way of kind of exerting their authoritative influence in a space where authority isn't necessarily like clearly mapped um so i think it's like changed a lot of how traditional institutions see themselves and their role that's not to say that they're going to be made redundant anytime soon yeah absolutely early in the book uh, you take issue slightly with the idea of british muslims as defined by physical or geographical space mm -hmm. do you think that the internet has emphasized more international dimensions of muslim identity yeah, absolutely. Um, that's yeah, because like when I when I made that comment, it was in reference to some books that had come out in 2017 about British Muslims. There were three books that came out. One was by Saeed Awasi, one was by uh, James Ferguson, and one was by Sarah Khan. And they're all like really really good books, and I kind of recommend that you read all of them. Um, and I'm sure like lots of your listeners have. But the thing that I was a little bit frustrated with was like the way that they frame. So like James Ferguson's book, Al Britannia, for example, which is a really beautifully written book. What he does is he travels around kind of areas of the UK where there are Muslim communities and he spends time with them. Mm. 
And it was a really, yeah, as I said, it's a really, really good book. And, you know, but for me, it was kind of like you're still the framework is still like going to geographic spaces. It reminded me a lot of like whenever there was like a Muslim story. So, you know, you know, the story about um, David, you know, the David Cameron criticized Muslim women who weren't learning English and something like that that happened in 2015. I remember that story happened and my editor was like, you need to go to Bradford and like find out what's going on. It's like, so (laughs) I'm at like Houston train station thinking like, why am I going to Bradford? Like, why, why, why am I doing this? Like, what is the purpose of doing this? And, you know, there's this kind of trope that Muslim journalists that I know, like, have where it's like, oh, whenever there's a Muslim story that breaks out, we're always, like, sent to Bradford, we're always sent to Tower Hamlets, we're always, like, sent to these, like, geographic places where there are, like, traditional Muslim communities to kind of get their kind of hot take on what's going on. And it didn't really get anywhere, it didn't really say anything, and that was what I was a little bit frustrated with. It was kind of like, you're you're telling, like, the same story, and I don't think that geography really means that much when it comes to kind of looking at communities and how they function. So to answer the second part of your question, there definitely is like a more internationalist scope, but not necessarily in a way that people would think there is. So, you know, there's not this case where like people are like affiliating with like Muslims in Iraq or Iran or in, you know, so in some cases there are like, so, you know, the incident in Sudan, for example, is bringing a lot of like Muslim attention. Um, you know, so you have like Muslims who are kind of, putting out things like prayers for Sudan or like donation funds for like the Sudanese people. Same with Palestine, same with Burma and everything. Like these kind of big international crises as more information kind of trickles online and in terms of videos and in terms of audio and stuff like that. There are like Muslims who kind of, that's kind of integral part of their identity, which is that my religion tells me that I should kind of fight against injustice. And that injustice isn't just in like the UK or where I live. It's everywhere. And if I have the means to kind of help people everywhere, then I should. Right. So there's one aspect, which is that. There's another aspect, which is a much more cultural one, where, you know, Muslims who kind of struggle with, like, the practicing component, but still, like, identify as Muslim or still, like, culturally identify as one, will kind of find other Muslims in different areas of the world who also feel the same way, or who have gone through the same struggles. So what I noticed was with, like, a lot of British Muslims who kind of identify as cultural Muslims, they often made kind of friends and networks with American Muslims, where the notion of a cultural Muslim is a little bit more accepted or a little bit more normalized there than it necessarily is over here. So for them, like, they found a lot of comfort in being part of American Muslim communities and almost felt that they had this, like, international identity, even if, like, they had never been to America before, never kind of part of that. They sort of felt that they were part of that movement. So I think that just being exposed to lots of different people and being exposed to lots of different possibilities of what Islam can be and is in a cultural sense as well as a religious one um, has meant that like technology has inevitably exposed people to a more internationalist side of what religious identity, the possibilities around religious identity. Yeah, so one other impression I got from the book is the idea that the internet has made it a lot easier for kind of alternative interpretations of Islamic theology to be Mm. expressed. Do you think that's the case and do you think it's a positive development? It's an interesting one because on the one hand, like there have always been lots of different interpretations of Islam anyway. And like any study of Islamic history, philosophy, theology, like Quranic exorcist will show that, right? Yeah. You know, even before the internet, there were so many different translations of the Quran that like that kind of exert different meanings. Um, And I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not the person to talk to about all of that, though I'd like love to learn about like all of it. So what the internet has done in some respect is kind of add to that 
tradition but through like different mediums so you know again part of it is like you know you can listen to different scholars and different kind of schools of thought and they'll have like different opinions on particular passages or particular um hadiths or like you know particular interpretations of surahs and everything so you're going to get like you're going to be exposed to different meanings and i think for lots of muslims who are like trying to search for themselves or search for aspects of identity they'll kind of like shop around not you know maybe not shop around is the right word but they'll kind of listen to a lot of interpretations to maybe you know figure out what is comfortable with them in a way that maybe before in like local community settings you were kind of told that this is like what we believe and this is what your interpretation should be and if you want to be part of this small community that you're in like this is the things that you need to follow so in some ways it's opened up like more choice on the other side it's also kind of opened up this crisis in authority because it means that almost anyone who's smart enough can like set up a big youtube channel or they can set up like a big twitter account or you know a social media platform in which to kind of give out interpretations and opinions scholarly opinions without kind of having to prove that they're allowed to do it so you know you can have like you know students of islamic theology who are not qualified to kind of give teachings and rulings and stuff giving out these rulings on like whatsapp and twitter and i've seen that and it's kind of been like well you know i i'm allowed to do this because i'm a student of like medina university and everything um whereas like before if you wanted to give out an opinion you'd have to do like a lot of years of study you'd have to kind of do a lot of you know years kind of giving lectures giving speeches being a community leader being a community advisor before you're kind of allowed you know before you're kind of able to give those interpretations so what the internet has done is kind of given a platform in which to give out those opinions where you don't ha- you, you're not necessarily held accountable for like your previous work or your previous attributions with the community mm. at the same time what it's also done is meant that you can be someone who has studied islam but you ha- you've never been kind of someone who's led a community or led kind of a mosque or anything. You've just got the knowledge. And for, you know, for a while, I-, I can't remember where I read this from, but it was interesting where to give out knowledge is also to kind of give out knowledge in the context of a community. So I think there was an imam who told me this. He was like, you know, you can study the books and everything. You can study like all the kind of surahs and all the like, you know, the, Arab, the classical Arabic and stuff. But if you don't know how to apply that to particular communities who face particular problems, that knowledge doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't, it's not really effective. And what you've got on YouTube is some people who give out this knowledge without ever having led a community before. So for, and that leads to kind of very purist, very kind of not necessarily realistic advice. Mm. And where that advice gets like thousands of views and thousands of shares, it can also make people feel as, you know, feel like, oh, the way that I practice Islam is like not authentic because I don't follow this particular very, you know, do you know what I mean? It's kind Absolutely. of, yeah. it's difficult to explain, but I think it's kind of what the internet has done is sort of removed the community aspect of like what giving knowledge is. And instead has kind of like reduced it to these very clear cut set of rules or clear cut set of beliefs and things that, you know, aren't necessarily like kind of open to crit- like long amounts of criticism or people who give it aren't really, you know, as open to kind of receiving or having to give accountability mm. because the, you know, the platform that you're on means that you're like digitally separated from people rather than kind of having to kind of face the consequences of what happens when the advice you give to your community doesn't go in the way that you want it to. Mm. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's that lack of accountability in some ways mm. and, and decontextualization. That's something that, that 
translates to all aspects yeah. of, you know political commentary yeah. like all of these things that's definitely yeah, something I that the internet has this is like the best way of putting it because it's kind of like okay you've got pundits who have like you know you have you, you have pundits who have like never worked in newspapers never worked in media because before like there was this thing where okay you could be a pundit if you did x amount of time at a newspaper or a tv channel yeah and you've got your knowledge and you've got your contacts and now you've got you know now we're in this place where some pundits who are just allowed to give their opinions on things or are just allowed to kind of you know do hot takes on stuff and they can do hot takes based on kind of their opinions and their lived experiences but they've never kind of they've, ne- they've never really had to kind of apply that to an environment or to an experience of like i've kind of studied how other people live or how other you know the challenges that other people face now i don't want to say that's everyone like obviously there are some really good pundits who like i read a lot but that kind of trend of people who are just allowed to say things because they command huge followings of people. Again, like, you know, it's it's very normal in politics. It's also very normal in the religious space too. So I know that kind of we touched upon at the start, a lot of the media narratives around British Muslims in this space is about online radicalization, And I know it's a lot more nuanced and complicated than that. Mm-hmm. But I, if you don't mind, I would just like to ask you a couple yeah, of, of things about it, if that's okay. Of course. So... Uh, there's one anecdote that you tell at the start of um, of a man called Abu Antar, yeah. who is basically radicalized and ends up in Syria yeah. fighting for ISIS. Do you think that counterterrorism forces um, and actors have a clear enough understanding of how the internet is being used by groups like ISIS? That's interesting because I feel like they they've got a lot better because it, there's been more. But at the same time, we're also at this stage where counter extremism is really changing mm. so with abu anta like he i first made contact with him at the end of 2014 and then we kind of lost contact throughout 2015 uh and we had contacted each other through kick which is like an encrypted messenger and at the time when lots of young people were going over to syria lots of them were going on these encrypted whatsapp the encrypted encrypted chats whether that was whatsapp or telegram or kick yeah. because they really wanted to like talk to people about why they were doing what they did it was for them it was part of like the whole propaganda thing so i had contacted several people who were all kind of giving me different kind of things so some of them were just kind of throwing kind of verses of the quran at me some of them were telling me that like i was working for the enemy by working for like western news outlets or american news outlets this was the first he was like the only guy who kind of was willing to have a conversation with me and at the time what i wanted to do was just get an exclusive interview with him because i really wanted to like prove myself as a journalist like my ambition was to be a political reporter and as everyone in this industry knows like you've really kind of got to you know you've got to you've got to you've got to like fight for your moment yeah. so i thought it was like yeah this is going to be my moment in you know the sun and it didn't quite happen but what i ended up doing was just having this kind of conversation with him which sometimes was about like why he went over to isis sometimes it was him just telling me that i should go and saying all these conflicts that you have with your faith like i've been through them too and like if you come to dola to like you know syria then um you know they will be resolved you know i promise like you know all that stuff and then sometimes it would just be you know him asking for like football scores because he couldn't watch tv or he would just ask like what's going on in britain and stuff Mm -hmm. like that because evidently he was still curious and i think a lot of them like had very limited screen time and that was like one of the things i found hilarious it was just like these kids who i'm absolutely sure were just like addicted to the internet and just had loads of time on it suddenly being told that oh you only have like a couple of hours in the internet cafe (laughs) 
and then you know you've got to go on with your life and you know for a lot of them it was really boring like living in Raqqa was really boring so for the men they got to fight for the women like they didn't really get to do that much and there's a lot of like literature about that now I think at the beginning there were lots of newspaper pundits who weren't they didn't really know what the role of the internet was in terms of radicalization. So they kind of crafted some very simplistic narratives of people who were just like groomed online or who were kind of ex- were exposed to kind of horrific material and that's how they became radicalized. And over time, I think we've had like a much more, in fact, this is a lot thanks to like, you know, institutions like the ICSR research that you guys have done, research that um, lots of kind of, you know, the Demos has been really good at this too. What they've kind of really done is like treat the internet as a, not as like a separate entity or as, as this kind of like weird alternative world where you can become radicalized, but kind of part of our lived experience, right? Mm. So I feel like we're at this stage at the moment where I think it'd be very silly for people to say he was radicalized entirely by the internet. Yeah. And this has kind of especially been the case with like the rise of kind of far right extremism, white nationalist extremism, where people who kind of find themselves in these spaces often find themselves there because of some sort of like lived experience or lived trauma or like feeling isolated in real life or kind of losing a job or losing a relationship. And the reason why they turn to these communities is for belonging in the same way that the reason why we turn turn to real life communities, like, you know, think about, you know, if you're kind of feeling down, the thing that you want to do is like go hang out with your friends or like go get a drink or go play some sports or something. It's because we're looking for meaningful connection. There are people who look for those meaningful connections online and expose themselves like the internet is this place where you can really expose yourself as being vulnerable because you can sometimes hide under the cloak of anonymity you can also you know you're also talking to people who you're not constrained by the real life limitations of conversation you know there's that kind of running thing where it's like you know if you're feeling depressed you're not going to like say to someone in real life uh, you know when they ask you how you're doing like oh i feel really like bad today um or i feel like really depressed today you know, you'll probably say, yeah, I'm doing fine. I'm doing okay. Like, yeah. you'll kind of keep mm-hmm. it to yourself. But online, people are, like, much more open and they'll kind of say very openly, like, I'm feeling really awful today. So I think what we've been able to do in the past few years is kind of recognise that the internet is an extension of the lived material space and nothing kind of happens purely on, you know, as a result of one platform. It might accelerate that way, but it might not. The thing that I wanted to say, though, was that I feel like just as just as like counter extremism, people who are interested in counter extremism have started to kind of get a grip on Islamist extremism. Mm. The idea of like, you know, networks and pathways, patterns of like searching, patterns of communications in like a way that's almost very uniform. We're now in this situation where we're trying to tackle like far right extremism, which is much more decentralized. When we look, think about the shoot, the Christchurch shooters, for example, yeah. this is a guy who wasn't part of any network. He wasn't really part of any extremist group. He was involved in some aspects of like the far right internet, but not in a way that kind of was pledging allegiance to something or kind of pledging allegiance to a leader. This is a decentralized movement that is almost entirely cultural and it's built entirely on like cultural anxiety. So now we have to kind of rethink our models around how you detect extremism away from like a network theory approach of doing that. And almost in a way that's very reflective of the internet now, which is like a decentralized thing where people kind of feel they belong to particular ideas or particular like cultural moments, but not necessarily embedded to the institutions that have guided them. 
So we're going to like our next stage. And this this probably won't just be with like white nationalists or far right people. It'll probably be with like, you know, Muslims or probably be with like environmental extremists, other forms of religious extremism where people are kind of like they they have like a feeling of like anxiety already. The Internet sort of like accelerates part of that. Some certain communities like nefarious groups online accelerate that anxiety and there will be some people who kind of say, you know, who will kind of convince themselves that I need to kind of stop this thing that I'm seeing online, which is absolutely like happening in real life mm. and take it into their own hands. You know what I mean? Like, absolutely. it's a really interesting, quite a scary time. And I feel like even though we've got a grip on some elements of that, things are changing so fast that we're going to have to really rethink how we think about extremism and how we also what tools we build in order to prevent and curtail it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you mentioned earlier uh, the sort of electoral shocks of 2016 mm. and and how we're still kind of trying to deal with those. And one one rise that we've seen has been a rise in race-based hate crime and Islamophobia and things. And yeah. while we can't necessarily draw like causation, but there's yeah. definitely been a rise since 2016. One of the interesting parts of the book that I was completely unaware of was how social media has been used by Muslim communities to mm. kind of counter this Islamophobia. Could you tell us something about that? Yeah, yeah. Because, like, again, it goes back to, like, when you feel that you don't have, like, the state's backing, if you mm. don't feel that, like, the, the state can adequately protect you, then you're kind of going to use any means to do that yourself. And for lots of Muslims, like, social media was an aspect in which they could kind of express themselves in an open space. So like mm. Twitter is a really good example of this because Twitter is like this huge platform where anyone can set, kind of set up an account and there's no real kind of hierarchy. So for lots of Muslims, they were like, well, I can use this platform and kind of make my case and I can't be censored. And also like it will be exposed to the people who are saying these like anti-Muslim Islamophobic things. You know, so for them, like these are platforms kind of that can kind of allow them a voice on their terms. Then you've got other cases for like McDiversity, for example, who I kind of feature in the book a little bit, who kind of keeps records of anti-Muslim statements in the media, like in mainstream media and also in online media as well. And he's got like this huge database that, you know, it collects like a lot of data, which then can be extrapolated to show, okay, this is like the extent of the problem. But not only is this the extent of the problem from like random people, but I can show you how things that happen in things that kind of are statements that are made in the mainstream media trickle down and how they trickle down on social media. So how this comment that was in the Telegraph, like can then be used by different, you know, but can then be kind of repurposed by pundits who then repurpose that on their social media feeds, which are then shared among their kind of followers. And that's how something can turn really vicious and violent, you know, so even kind of exposing that is shows like the huge scale of the issue where even kind of people who have been hostile to, Islam generally have been having to accept that oh actually like anti-Muslim sentiment online is a big problem even if I have like differing views about how to solve it then there are other cases where people are making kind of you know private groups where they can talk about aspects of Islamic identity so especially if you're in a minority so in the book I speak to like a gay Muslim who says to me that like I have these issues I have like issues online where on the one hand Muslims are telling me that my faith is inauthentic because I can't be gay and Muslim. But on the other hand, I have like the LGBT community online who are telling me that like, I can't be gay and Muslim either, right? Because, you know, they're incompatible. And like, you know, how can you reconcile like a faith that is anti-LGBT in like square quotes while also kind of, you know, being a gay person. So then 
safe kind of safer environments of like gay LGBT Muslims become really important for him because they're a way of you know expressing your faith and kind of combating these like islamophobic tropes or even by kind of these like anti like homophobic tropes in a space where you don't have to kind of be fight coming out fighting like you can just be you you can just kind of deal with your struggles in a place that's safe and in a place that's supportive so like these private groups are becoming so important in terms of an expression of identity you know so i think there, yeah there are different kind of ways that Muslims are kind of combating the Islamophobia that they receive. Not all of it is very, not all of it is, you know, attacking the Islamophobia head on or trying to like, you know, trying to kind of assert the humanity of Islam in general. I think there's this, there is this trend of like Muslims who are just like exhausted by having to kind of prove their humanity, which like right, rightly so. So it's not entirely being used for that, but I think like there are people who are using social media in really interesting ways to just like be themselves and to kind of express different forms of Islam in so doing their existence, the existence of these private groups, the existence of these people, the kind of continuation of them being on social media, not like not being hounded off is almost a way of like resisting, you know, anti-Islamophobic and anti-Muslim tropes that kind of keep increasing online. There, I had one other question, which was about like the reception of the book. But is it too early, really, to sort of? I mean, it's been doing. Of... I think that there have been Muslims who have really enjoyed it, and like I've been really thankful for their support and everything. Because I really wrote it for the community. Mm. I'm really glad that other people are really enjoying it too. People who are like you know reporters or like religion writers or people who are just interested. And I've also been really happy that so many people have been interested in it because I think my big worry was that because this was such a niche thing anyway and you know at a time when there have been like a lot of books about muslims that have come out i sort of wondered okay did people really need another one yeah so i've been really happy that people have been excited to read it and really like learn things from it but the thing that i've been most happy about is just, like muslims who kind of come to my like, come to events and they're just like you know thank you for like writing about an experience that was really difficult for me to articulate or thank you for kind of writing about a different aspect of muslim experience that for so long I knew existed but like no one was talking about it so yeah I wrote this for Muslim communities and I really hope that what I've written sort of reflects or at least adds kind of more to their experience because they really deserve that and the British Muslim experience really does deserve more nuanced and broader like writing and more respectful writing Well, let's hope uh, more people continue to buy the book. Yes, please do. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And that's all we've got time for on this episode of Undercurrents. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Hussein, his book, Follow Me Aki is available in all good bookshops and presumably online on retailers that we won't mention. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with some new interviews for you. In the meantime, I'm Ben Horton and this is Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Mm